We want to welcome you to the Bible teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church, where our desire is to honor God by faithful obedience to His Word. If you want to understand the Bible better, please continue to listen as Pastor Matt Postiff explains and applies the biblical text one verse at a time. You can reach us with questions or for more teaching audio and print material at our website, fbcaa.org. You can also watch our services live at fbcaa.org live. We want to thank you for listening and pray that you will be edified. Join us now as Pastor Postiff opens God's Word. Join me in uh, turning your Bibles, please, to the book of Acts, chapter 4. Acts chapter 4, as we begin tonight in the Word, having completed a nice time of prayer together and sharing requests, please do take those prayer sheets with you and pray through uh, some things in the next couple of days, if you would, please. Acts chapter 4, we looked last time at chapter 3, and I'll give a little review of that, and uh, then we'll get into uh, chapter 4 here. let me just remind you, the chapter 3 opened with a miracle of healing. A 40-year-old plus, 40-plus-year-old man with a humanly incurable disease of his feet or disability uh, there was immediately healed and able to walk, never having walked before, the Bible informs us. He was carried everywhere. Just, um, just having the coordination to walk after that is a miracle, much less... Uh, jumping up and down and praising God in the midst of uh, the temple as he did that uh, in thanksgiving for what God had done for him. This opened the opportunity for Peter to preach to a large crowd because people saw this man and they started to gather and try to find out what was happening. So Peter had the opportunity to preach in chapter 3, verses 12 through uh, uh, 26, in fact. And he uh, connects the miracle to the gospel message because the miracle was done by the Savior, the Savior who was crucified by the people of Israel, the people of Israel who needed to repent, and the people of Israel to whom God had sent Jesus and raised him up from the dead in order to bless them in turning every one of them away from their iniquities. So we spent a moment last time on that last note there, thinking in verse 26 of what a blessing it is when God turns you away from your iniquities. When you're in them, you don't know how much they stink until you come out and you smell the fresh air of salvation. You know what I mean? (laughs) Yeah, it's an amazing thing. It's like when you go from one room to another and the smell changes and you realize, oh, I was in all of this all the time. You know, we've had a number of evenings in our home where the, uh, the skunks have visited and more than just the skunk, but the skunk's odor has come in. And it's just a couple times it's been really bad. Over the years, we've had at least two skunks, or if not three, die on our property. And uh, they, really, they really let it go when they do that. <laughs> so it's no fun. But you begin to realize, uh, like when you leave the house for a little while, then you come back in and you smell it again, like, oh, I was so used to it before, I didn't even notice. You know, by morning time, say if it was all night, and it's just gotten, you've gotten used to it. But it's, yeah, that's, what's, that's what sin is like. So when you get out of that situation, you realize what is the, the blessing of being turned away from your iniquities and being forgiven of your sins. You just can't really understand it until you've experienced it. You can hear about it with the hearing of the ear, but uh, what about the experience of the life? 
Now, when they did this, Peter and John preaching this way, they have a huge crowd of people there. People are listening to them, uh, beginning to to believe what they're saying. They can't they can't oppose what happened to the man. They knew the man for all the years that they came to the temple. There he was sitting there, pathetic fellow, unable to move himself or just scoot around with his arms and didn't have the benefit of, you know, kind of a wheelchair and all that stuff that we have today. So the religious authorities uh, get involved. And verse 1 of chapter 4, it says, Now as they spoke to the people, the priests, the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees came upon them, being greatly disturbed that they taught the people and preached in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they laid hands on them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. However, many of those who heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to be about 5,000. So jail time for the apostles Peter and John. It says in verse 3, put them in custody until the next day. We don't know exactly what that was, but it probably wasn't uh, cashless bail and uh, three squares and a nice soft bed and a shower and a toilet and all that sort of thing. This is what happens. Listen now. I'm burdened about this. I've been for many, many years. This is what happens when you combine religious authority with police authority in one group of people. When you have a group of people who are rabidly set on their religion, their thinking, their mindset, and they have police power, you have a big problem. That is why you must have, in a properly run government, you must have severe separation of power. You have a severe separation of church and state in a way. You can't have a religious viewpoint being pressed down upon the people by those that have police authority. Today, a similar thing as this is happening. But the religion is not first century Judaism. The religion combined with the police power is a religion of human creation, of secular atheistic humanism. It holds to beliefs including communism, and rituals like abortion, and free drug use, and open immorality, and many other things. They hold those with a religious fervor. Combined with the police power, when you don't listen to them, they do what they want to do with you. Put you in jail if you're a pastor who disagrees with them. Uh, you know, Censure you if you don't use the right pronouns, if you don't accept the transgender, if you don't, because they have a religion that is secular atheistic humanism. And so I'm very burdened about this combination of religion. People don't call it religion. They're like It's science. It's not religion. No, they believe scientism, scientism, if I could say it that way, with a religious fervor and never ask questions about it. They have become what they claim that we are. You can ask me any question you want. You can ask us any You can struggle with anything. But for them, don't ask about certain things. Don't ask about the statistics of this vaccine or that treatment or this you know, medication or whatever. That's just the latest, you know, the latest thing. Don't question global warming. You know, aren't you some, are you some kind of back? 
water redneck or something like that? Don't, ask, don't question. You can't question. You're not allowed to do that. You see how that's become a religious, religious kind of thing? Just like it did for the, for the um, rabbi who boxed Dr. Sachs's father's ears. Don't ask who is the stone because if you ask questions like that, you might go down a path that we don't want you to go down. You might deny the kind of false things that we've been trying to teach you. That's the problem with combining powers like that. The leaders did not want other teachers influencing the hoi polloi and particularly against their leadership. Now that's totally natural. Why should we expect otherwise? It's, it's when these types of people get into power with unfettered authority that really becomes problematic. And that's, of course, similar for us today. Despite their behavior against Peter and John, many hearing the preaching about Jesus believed because of the weight of truth. I mean, if you see the guy who's now walking who wasn't walking, and you know that, look, we, our doctors aren't that good. We don't have that great of medicine. You know, This guy's been paralyzed from the waist down or whatever for his whole life. And there's no way that he could just be walking now accidentally. The miracle was obvious. The sensibility of what Peter was saying to them was obvious. Now, I say that, and I'm aware that if you don't trust in Christ, you will say, well, that's not the sensibility of it's not obvious to me at all. In fact, I know, I know about you that if you're a Gentile or a Jew, there's the gospel is a stumbling block or it's foolishness to you. Just telling you, that's, we know that already. But it is ultimately sensible and obvious what Peter is saying because put yourself in the shoes of those who are hearing him. If you were one of the ones who cast your vote against Jesus, remember, when did these events occur? Weeks at most months after Jesus died, rose again, and went to heaven. Days later, they're preaching the gospel in, in, in chapter 2, 10 days after Jesus ascends to heaven, chapter 3, chapter 4. We're not that far into the church's history here. These people who heard him, some of them, all of them knew about Jesus. They knew all the events that had happened with regard to him. They knew that Jesus existed. They cast their vote against him. Some of them said, crucify him. They heard all the rumors about him. They saw his life. They knew what Pilate did. They saw how Jesus died. If you were in their shoes, you would probably be whistling a different tune than what you are today when you say, oh, that's not obvious to me at all. To them, it was obvious. They blew it, and they knew it. So... The next day, verse 5 says, their rulers, elders, and scribes, as well as Annas the high priest, Caiaphas, John, and Alexander, all these guys who had, who had put Jesus to death, and as many as were of the family of the high priest were gathered together at Jerusalem. And when they had set them, that is Peter and John, in the midst, they asked, by what power or by what name have you done this? Well, may I say, as our friend Dr. McGee would say, that is the dumbest question that they could ask. Verse number two says this, they were greatly disturbed that Peter and John taught the people and preached 
in Jesus, the resurrection of the dead. They knew which name these guys were all about. They didn't have to have any, they didn't have to ask at all. That's a dumb question that they asked. So Peter then, however, because of that question, has an opportunity to speak about Jesus. So the question was his entree to answer, and he aggressively confronts his questioners this way. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders of Israel. Okay, this is, this is the diminutive fisherman Peter, the uneducated Peter, confronting the rulers and elders of Israel, the whole kit and caboodle of them. If we this day are judged for a good deed done to a helpless man, that's the other thing that's crazy about this. You threw us in jail for helping a guy walk again? Are you insane? If we this day are judged for a good deed done to a helpless man, yes, we are, by what means he has been made well, let it be known to you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man stands here before you whole. Just pause and and just let me remind you, who is this speaking? Tell me his name. Peter? You were with him, weren't you, Peter? Oh, no. No, no, no. You've got to be one of them. Your speech betrays you. No, no, no. I don't don't know this man. Just months before, he's denying Jesus. Now he's standing in front. Yeah, he's wearing an oath. Now he's standing before the very people that crucified his Lord and telling them off if I could say it that way, telling them off. This is Jesus, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead. By him this man stands here before you whole. This is the stone which was rejected by you builders, who has become the chief corner stone. That's, a, that's another statement that's just amazing. Here they are, they're the builders. They're like the, remember how the leaders of Israel are called shepherds back in Ezekiel? The priests are the shepherds, they're the leaders, they're the rulers. Um, They're the ones that are supposed to be providing and protecting the people, providing for them, protecting them religiously, spiritually, the law, and and yet they were taking from them and eating up their substance and abusing them and taking advantage of their priesthood and all of that. And they, but these guys were supposed to be the builders, like those guys were supposed to be the shepherds. And these builders missed the most important piece of building material that they could ever have missed. They missed the cornerstone, the capstone, the keystone, the foundation stone. They missed the one from which you measure everything else, the right angles of it, the, you know, the angles of your building. Everything rests upon that cornerstone. Without him, their whole system of religion was futile. And they rejected the stone which was given to them as the chief cornerstone. Psalm 118. Let me go there just briefly. Psalm 118. Peter showing his knowledge of the word of God in Psalm 118, 22 
The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. He reflects. And then Isaiah. Who, who is the stone? Isaiah 28. Isaiah 28, verse number 16, says this, Therefore thus says the Lord God, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone for a foundation, a tried stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not act hastily. Paul adapts that. Whoever believes will not be put to shame. And Matthew chapter 21 and verse number 42, Scripture says, Jesus said to them, Have you never read the Scriptures? The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. So they rejected the cornerstone, so Jesus therefore said, I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a nation bearing the fruits of it. These are the ones, these Pharisees, these leaders, these rulers, Alexander, Annas, Caiaphas, John, and the others who were rejecting the salvation of God. And Peter says, there is no other salvation anywhere else that you can find. Okay, By Jesus, who's raised from the dead, this man's been raised up from disability. Verse 11, this is the stone which was rejected by you builders. Peter just says it right out. This is the stone which has become the chief cornerstone, nor is there salvation in any other. Why would Peter say that, by the way? You know, you are Peter, and upon this rock, he's got to be thinking of some of this stuff when he's preaching. Upon this rock I will build my church, the rock of Christ, the chief cornerstone. Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. They're rejecting the only way of salvation of God. Who is it? By what name? Peter answers. So Peter has the opportunity to proclaim Christ. He emphasizes Jesus' name, his death, his resurrection, his salvation, his status as the cornerstone. Um, and he asserts boldly that there is no other name by which we can be saved. Um, and, and I would just add this too. If there's no other name by which you can be saved... Do you think there's any other philosophy by which you can get saved? Any other secret knowledge by which you can get saved? Any other method by which you can get saved? Look, there has to be a person. There has to be a power. There has to be somebody who cares for people to save them, somebody that has the power to save them, uh, somebody who has the means to save them, somebody who has the care to save them, an empty philosophy, a mechanical method, an impersonal set of knowledge, None of that can work, not even close. Now, the Jewish leaders were, were set back on their heels, basically in shock at the demeanor of Peter and John. Verse 13, Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men, they marveled. You know, here they are. They're leafing through their alumni association of you know, the priesthood, and they're like, I don't see these guys in this list. They didn't go to our school. They're not cool. You know, they're, they're, not, they're not graduates of this fine institution. And so they said, well, wait a minute. 
they realized they had been with Jesus. That was the key difference. They didn't have to go to Gamaliel Seminary in order to be trained. They went to Jesus Seminary and were trained. Much better school. Very good practical training too, by the way. Less classroom time than you'd expect, but a whole lot of real-life training, wasn't there? Hands-on training, boy. And after a while, send two-by-two out to go and, and minister the gospel and all of that. So anyway, they're shocked. They're, uh, you know, they, they, they didn't, these guys haven't come up the way we came up. The, John and Alexander and Caiaphas and Annas, they have a great deal of pride. A great deal of pride. You know, people have this today. You know, they, I went to an Ivy League school. Where did you go? You know, oh, some no-name four-year state school somewhere. That pride is endemic in humanity, and people have it here, religiously, there. You know, if they went to the flagship school of their denomination or they went to the Harvards and MITs and Yales and all that sort of thing, that doesn't get you anywhere with God. <laughs> that's, all, that's all just play things for, for God, toy things, not real. So the other thing is the, um, the leaders could not argue about the transformation that had occurred in the man who had been unable to walk for 40 years. It must not, it must not have um, been lost to them that when they walked through the temple precincts, they would see this guy once in a while. Every day, they knew he was there for years. That man was totally transformed, wasn't he? Now, let me ask you this. This is not this text, but this is a kind of extrapolation of it. If, if Peter saved that man from his, which it wasn't Peter, it was Jesus, but let's just say Peter raised him up off, of his feet, off the ground onto his feet, and the transformation was so crystal clear, so you know, instantaneous and so total, there was no argument. He wasn't able to walk, now he is able to walk. When Jesus saved you, was the transformation as clear as that? Did, did anybody have any question that you got saved? Do you know what I'm saying? There was no, no questioning this man. He was bouncing. You know, he was totally different. But sometimes I fear the situation of, well, I'm not sure if that person's saved. You know what I'm saying? Like, how can you not be sure? They were dead. If they're saved, now they're alive. They were unable to walk. Now they're walking. It seems like it should be clear, shouldn't it? That's the nature of true salvation. So it was clear, this guy's transformation. If, there's, if, it was, if it's not clear in our personal lives, that our, our salvation, then there's a real problem. We, we need to have clarity. And there's to be clarity about our life that we really are following Christ and we're not just kind of going along, mouthing the words. These guys, the, these leaders and the Pharisees could not control the spread of the news about the man nor of the gospel itself. You know, the news was out. It was too late. Everybody knew. And so the apostles were compelled. They couldn't do but what they were doing. Um, 
So verse 14, again, we go, kind of going backwards. Seeing the man who had been healed standing with them, they, that is the Pharisees, the leaders, could say nothing against it. But when they commanded them to go outside of the council, they conferred among themselves. Here's what they said. What shall we do to these men? For indeed, that a notable miracle has been done to them is evident to all who dwell in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But so that it spreads no further among the people, let us severe... This is where they were foolish. They thought they are going to stop the spread of this information. Let us severely threaten them that from now on they speak to no man in this name. So they called them and commanded them to speak not at all, not to speak or at all or teach in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said to them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than to God, you judge. Okay, guys, think about it. What do you think we're going to pick, God or you? For we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. They were compelled. They, were, they would not knuckle under to the authorities who were demanding disobedience to God. They were helped also by the people. Listen to this, verse 21. So when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way of punishing them because of the people, since they all glorified God for what had been done. The people had voted, and the Pharisees knew they could not dis, uh, displease the people any further without incurring their wrath. The miracle was undeniable. The people knew that it was undeniable, and uh, it was clear that the people were on the side of the apostles, which was good for the apostles, right? The mass of people with them, nothing could be done. It was like, you know, it's us versus us Pharisees versus the mob. So we're going to back off. Good. God arranged that to limit their wickedness. They'll have another chance at the apostles later on in chapter uh, 5. But in any case, how do the uh, Christians respond to this? Well, um, in verse 23, it's verses 23 to 31 actually, um, I, I did skip verse 22, for the man was over 40 years old on whom this miracle of healing had been performed. Okay, Some of us are over 40 years old. You're older than 40 and you have this happen to you. I mean, it's hopeless after, <laughs> after you've been in that situation for five years, 10 years, 15 years, 20 years, 25 years. Nearly a half a century. He's over 40, so he's getting on to 50. I mean, he's over the hill, right? <laughs> What's that? Watch what I say. <laughs> uh, too many people over 40 in this room don't, don't want me to be saying that. Um, but thank God you can walk. This guy couldn't walk. So, so what do the believers do then? And being let go, they went to their own companions and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. So when they heard that, they raised their voice to God with one accord. Now listen, remember, by this time, how many people have become saved in the church in Jerusalem? Do you remember in chapter 2? What's that? Yeah, somebody said 8,000. But uh, it tells us in chapter 2... Hang on a second. Where is it? For 41, it was 3,000. Acts chapter 2, verse 41 is 3,000. Then the number of them came to be 5,000. 
I guess you were adding 3 and 5, huh? Okay, well, that's an optimistic look at it. I was saying it went from 3 to 5. You're saying it went 3 plus 5. Well, anyway, they went back. I mean, this wasn't just like they went back to two or three people in, in some house. They were going back to the initial 120, hundreds of others perhaps, who knows. They told these folks, and they're praying and they pray to God, and they raise their voice with one accord to God and said, Lord, you are God who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them, who by the mouth of your servant David have said, Why did the nations rage and the people plot vain things? The kings of the earth took their stand, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For truly against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, were gathered together to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined before to be done. Now look on their threats and grant to your servants that with all boldness they may speak your word by stretching out your hand to heal, and that signs and wonders may be done through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they spoke the word of God with boldness. What's your initial reaction going to be when your leaders in your church, deacons, pastor, have been hauled in front of the authorities, threatened, jailed? Are you going to be bold or are you going to be fearful? This example right here is boldness and asking for boldness. Asking for boldness. Don't knuckle under to fear. Now, and, and what they were doing here was they, they said, Look, Lord, you told us in Psalm 2, the nations are raging. The heathen are plotting vain things against the Lord and against his anointed. We know that this is going to happen. And now they, they realize this, you're anointed as Jesus, and he's the one that they're persecuting. They're just getting at, trying to get at him through Peter and John, so to speak, this time. But they're saying... We know that this is a, if you could say, a fulfillment, one of the fulfillments of this passage of Scripture. And I don't, I don't believe in, you know, Scriptures having multiple fulfillments in different ways and different times. But if there's a generic promise or a generic prediction, then it can be fulfilled generically many times. When do the nations rage against God and His Christ? <laughs> All the time. All the time. They're doing it now, today, against God. Our government in the United States, the governments around the world are raging against God. We don't want their constraints. We want immorality to rule everything. And so this was just one fulfillment of this text. This will continue until the Lord returns and smashes all this opposition, and it will recur once again at the end of the millennial kingdom when Satan is released and the people, he deceives the nations once more, and they gather together against God and his Christ in Jerusalem. And God says, guys, don't you ever learn? He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. He shall hold them in derision. He says, look, kiss the son. Do homage to him, lest he be angry with you in the way. That's the teaching of Scripture. Listen to what God is saying. The vanity of these leaders to plot against Christ. They recognize here, these believers do, they recognize that the world is truly against Jesus. It's not just paranoia, you know. It's not paranoia if it's 
true that everybody's against you, <laughs> right? Everybody is against Jesus and his people. Whether explicitly or implicitly, the world hates Jesus, and it lies in the lap of the wicked one. Whether the opposition is subtle or overt, we've had that happen. You know, They schedule things in, contra- in, 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 in uh, uh, opposition or to our Bible study at the same time, just a subtle thing. Or overt, you know, close your church or else, that sort of thing. But it is all under the sovereign control and limitation of God. He determined beforehand that Christ would suffer and then to be glorified. So in a situation that could induce great fear in the believers, they did not cave into their fear. Instead, they asked for boldness to speak the word and that more miracles would be done so that they would have more opportunities to do what Peter and John just had done. So God kindly answered their prayer in verse 31. When they had prayed, the place where they assembled together was shaken. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they spoke the word of God with boldness. We would like to think that we should speak openly too like they did, but do we? But do we actually do so? We see the Spirit of God in this passage uh, working in verse 31. He's also way back in chapter 4, verse 8. Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit when he preached. And uh, because uh, we're running out of time, I'm going to just put a line in it here and say next time pick up where the line is on my notes. But I'll close with this. I take from this passage the critical need to follow the example of the early disciples in praying recognizing the fulfillment of Scripture and the opposition that we will face, but also trusting in God's power through the gospel to bring people to faith in Christ. While that opposition is going on, and in fact, because of that opposition, more people heard the word and more people were impacted. So don't think that opposition is all negative. God can use it for positive as well. So maybe we'll face some opposition and God will use that to bring more people to the church, that would, be, uh, that would be a delightful thing, even though the persecution would not be at all delightful. So when you're faced with these kinds of things, pray, trust God. And, you know, when you're in the midst of it, like Peter, you know, Jesus said, when they haul you up before magistrates and kings, don't worry about what you're going to say, but look at what Peter did. Turn from, you know, the most fearful denier of Christ into the boldest proponent of the gospel in front of the most wicked of men. So God can do that with us too. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the blessing of the word of God and for the clarity of the teaching of it. Thank you that we could share a little bit tonight uh, to to encourage us, to strengthen, to to, uh, bring us power because we have read the Word of God. We know the meaning of it. The meaning of it hasn't changed. Uh, The world is still lined up in opposition to the Messiah and to you, and we're on your side, and we want to do what we can to proclaim the name of Christ. Help us to do that and not to be fearful. In Jesus' name, amen.